You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. My name is Ronnie. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm one of the elders here at Gospel Community Church. I'm probably a little too excited to preach to you today, but that's okay. As, as uh, Ian said earlier, we're covering the 10 plagues. It's a lot of ground to cover. I might talk a little fast. I do that already. But with uh, chapters 7 through 11, it's a lot of content to cover and a lot of stuff happens in that time. I'll try to pick out the highlights and the things that I think are most important. If you're a guest here, man, you picked a day. We hope we don't do anything to make you feel super, super uncomfortable. As it was said earlier, everything we do is to lift up and point to Jesus, who is the hero. I, I'm not the hero. Rick's not the hero. And none of the people who volunteer and serve here, we hope that everything we do is pointing back to Jesus and what he's done for us. And not, nothing we do here should be any vain attempt on our own part to receive God's glory and his praise and earn our salvation, but just as a way of giving back and spread what God has already given to us. If you consider Gospel Community Church your home and your family, I'm excited to be here with you again this Sunday morning, and uh, let's jump into it. So uh, Exodus 7 through 11, we took a very short break last week, but we have as a church been going through the book of Exodus, looking at the grace and the promises of God in delivering his people. And I want to do kind of a quick recap of the story so far, because some of what has taken place in the past is going to be incredibly important when we get to what we're looking at today. So don't forget all we're looking at when it comes to the 10 plagues, what has happened before, because God is not about to capriciously interrupt Pharaoh's little work program that he's put together for the Israelites. Okay. In Exodus 1, 8 through 12, we see that it was out of a growing fear of the Israelite population exploding that Pharaoh decided he was going to enslave them. And when, especially for us, I would assume most of us in here are Americans, something like slavery in our nation's relatively recent national history, we can all sit here and say, this is evil. 
Pharaoh's a bad guy right out of the gate. But it was, it was even, a, it says a harsh slavery. They put taskmasters over them. I don't think any of us have ever probably been forced into a job we didn't want to do other than your dad asking you to mow the yard. But imagine how much more cruel that would be with somebody over your shoulder, making sure you're working and performing at a level with which you, uh, they, they desire and whipping you when you're not. I, I've had bosses look over my shoulder as I'm, as I'm working and it's incredibly fu- infuriating and stressful. And, and it's so much worse for them. And that's pretty bad. I don't think anybody would disagree that Pharaoh's probably a, a pretty evil guy at this point. But it gets even worse. Even under intense persecution, God's people continue to explode. Their population, they continue to grow, which isn't something to quickly glance over, by the way. When you look around at your life and your situation and the world at large, I think we can look at what the Israelites were going through in that time and see how God was even helping them grow and helping them flourish under intense persecution. We can have hope and we can have faith and we can look to the future with both of these things, knowing that God isn't going to abandon his people. As a matter of fact, God often does incredible things, even in the midst of darkness, in the midst of horrible things. As a matter of fact, it even points more to God's glory when we see him do something incredibly powerful. Kind of a a little bit of a spoiler alert, but when you go forward in the Exodus story, when they're walking through the other side of the Red Sea, none of the Israelites are sitting there saying, man, we really showed those Egyptians. Uh, They they were singing praises to God. They knew exactly who was responsible for getting them out of the situation they were in. It was all God's glory. So they continue to grow, even with this chaos that's around them and the bad things that are happening to them. And this is bad... uh, And that in itself is bad news for their oppressors. It's bad news for Pharaoh. And we see his evil goes even deeper when his plans are foiled. In Exodus 1.6, Pharaoh does something incredibly disgusting. He secretly goes to the midwives and tells them, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And if you're a mother in the room who has gone through the physical and emotional trauma of birth, I, I, I hope you're, you hear this and feel what, what Pharaoh is doing here, and especially to go secretly to someone like a midwife. This is a woman who signed up to help other women in one of the most traumatic events they could ever experience in their lives. And to go to them secretly and tell them that after all that trauma and all that labor, I want you to steal their sons and kill them is awful. Uh, there are words I don't feel like I can personally express here in a, in a church setting to describe how that makes me feel. It's pretty disgusting. And, and thank God for the midwives, though, because they ended up fearing God more than Pharaoh, and they actually subverted his plan. And, and God, which is an interesting case study on whether or not lying is always evil, because they, they lied to Pharaoh, and God actually, it says, he blessed them. That's complicated. Now Pharaoh's even angrier. His sin is no longer secret. It becomes public. He makes a public decree that every Hebrew son is to be cast into the Nile, but the girls will be spared. And and there's multiple levels of disgustingness going on here. Uh, The fact that the sons are being killed and the girls are left behind, I think we can see the obvious implications of what's going on. Uh, Hopefully, we we remember the rest of the story as we come to chapter 7 through 11, but I wanted to highlight these two points as we we go into these chapters. So we're going to jump in. If there's one main point I'd like you to take away today, something to remember as we're going through all this, is that godlessness leads to chaos. God brings order, uh, and, and godlessness, without God, we experience disorder. The same disorder that was there in the beginning, before God came in and entered and created order out of all the chaos, is what we experience personally and in the world at large when we abandon him. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into chapters 7 through 11. 
Uh, if you have a Bible, I would highly suggest you open it uh, because there won't be any slides. It's too much to cover. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to get up right now. I won't be offended. There are Bibles in the back of the room that you could take. If you have it on your phone, please open it up. Uh, you guys are my fact checkers today, so you, you can look and read along and make sure I'm not saying anything crazy. There's actually New Testament evidence to support that you should be making sure I'm not up here just saying all kinds of crazy things. So you, you are active participants in my, my exegeting of God's word. So let's pray. God, uh, th this is a difficult section of scripture for some people. Uh, there's a lot of evil here uh, and there's, there's retribution. There's things like justice being enacted on human beings. There's human suffering here, a lot of it. And, and this is a difficult thing for us to wrestle with, God. I, I pray that as we go throughout these passages, uh, you'd help us see what you're doing. I pray that you'd speak through me. If there's anything I've prepared that is not of you, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears, but I, I pray that there, there would be something here that would encourage us all today, that would help us walk faithfully in Christ, that would help you follow, help, help us follow Christ. Uh, we pray that your name is glorified this, this morning, just as it was back then when these 10 plagues were brought upon the enemies of the Israelites. We love you, God. Amen. So immediately chapter seven starts off, a little crazy, especially, well, I mean, there's even more craziness to come, but God says to Moses in his relationship to Pharaoh, as he goes and speaks to him, you are going to be like God to Pharaoh, which is interesting. The very first time that Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, you need to let my people go. Pharaoh turns to Moses saying, who is God? Who is God? He kind of dismisses him. Who is him that I should obey his voice? Who is he that I should listen to him? And it's funny now that we come to the 10 plagues. I don't know if you you know the Kevin Hart skit that I'm referencing, but God essentially says at the beginning of this, you're going to learn today because uh, he, he's about to show Pharaoh exactly who God is. You don't know who I am. Let me introduce myself. God knows exactly how this is all going to play out. It even says later on in chapter nine that God had lifted and brought Pharaoh up into the very position that he was in to demonstrate his glory before all the earth, before the people of the Israelites, before the Egyptians. Now, uh, thousands of years into the future, looking back, we're able to see God's glory and him having lifted up a evil, evil and wicked man all to demonstrate his glory over him. So this will all point to the glory of God. I wouldn't, when Moses initially goes to God, he flexes a little bit of his power and he throws down a stick to, to turn it into a snake. Now the court magicians, they kind of replicate this and they fool Pharaoh for a second, but Moses' snake immediately eats up the snake of the Egyptians as they try this cheap parlor trick. And, and it works for a second. And I got to be honest, as soon as I, if I was Pharaoh and I saw that, that would have put me, I, I would have been there. I'd have been like, okay, I believe this God. That, that would have been enough for me. Um, and I'm pretty skeptical. I've mentioned that before. And Pharaoh, when he sees this, he has an opportunity, like I said, to, to believe it and to, and to go, okay, there's some power here that I, I don't have that I'm not able to tap into. Maybe I should listen to this Moses fellow. But he hardens his heart and he digs his heels in. The sad truth about rebellion to God is oftentimes we encounter opportunities where we can either be like Pharaoh and dig our hearts in, or we can soften ourselves. Our hearts come to a, a crucial moment where a decision can ma be made that will have rippling impacts. Will we harden our heart? Will we soften? Will we turn to God? Will we repent and receive our forgiveness, or will we continue in our sin? And remember, this is all, this is all a grace of God right now for Pharaoh. He's evil. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. He's evil. He warrants God's judgment. But in this moment, Pharaoh's been given a sign, a sign that the vast majority of human history will never see. 
Miracles, even in scripture, are far and few between. They're oftentimes separated. Even the biblical narrative, they're separated by centuries of time. God is giving Pharaoh a chance by showing him something that you and I will probably never see. And now his heart can either soften or harden. He has an opportunity to relent and turn away from what he's doing to the Israelites and repent. But in Exodus 7, 13, we see that he hardens his heart and God initiates the first plague. And God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning. In Exodus 7, 15, go to the Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. God's got this man's schedule. And he knows more than that. God is intimately familiar, most specifically with the Egyptian culture. They, the Egyptians, like most ancient cultures, had created all different kinds of gods to explain the natural phenomena around them. And many psychologists and people who tend to dismiss religion just outright like to say that the reason why people in ancient times had created gods was because there were all these forces beyond their control. We even see stuff like this now in Florida. There's another hurricane. So there's these powerful forces at work in the world that they have no control over, but, but hey, what if there's a God of the hurricane that I can sacrifice to, and maybe that'll give me some kind of control over the hurricane? My crops keep dying every single year. Maybe there's a God with which I can sacrifice to, and I can manipulate this thing, and it'll, it'll bring me exactly what I want. And so this is, this is the thinking why they had all these different kinds of things. If you're worried about severe weather, you offer up a sacrifice, and it gives you some kind of illusion of control. Whether or not you have it or not, there's some, comf- there's some comfort that comes in thinking that you might be able to somehow control the natural forces of the world. And like most things they had made gods for, there was a god of the Nile. The Egyptians had a god of the Nile, because the Nile uh, is an incredibly dangerous river, even today. Not, not as dangerous as the god who actually made it, but... This scene now that plays out in Exodus 7 where Pharaoh is out on the waters of the Nile and God has commanded Moses and Pharaoh to go rebuke him and tell him to let my people go. This is intense. This is, this is the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh. And I, I, I oftentimes wonder why he didn't just kill Moses and Aaron initially. You ever wonder that? Like why did he even put up with their nonsense in the first place? And I, I often wonder if it's a sense of hubris on Pharaoh's part. He thought him, himself to be a god. Maybe he wanted the challenge. He wanted to go up, up against his so-called Yahweh and see how it would go down. I don't know. Maybe there's something sick in his mind that thought he could take down Yahweh. And so he, he humors these Israelites and allows them to play this little game. But they're standing on the bank of the Nile in verse 20. And it says that they were in the sight of everyone. So Pharaoh is there and they're openly rebuking him. Let my people go that they may serve our God in the wilderness. And with Pharaoh watching on from the Nile, Moses lifts up his staff into the air. Maybe some sick curiosity is dancing inside the mind of Pharaoh, wondering, what, what are, how will the Egyptian god of the Nile respond to these blasphemous Israelites? How is this going to happen? The source of so much life and death. The Nile was a power beyond even a king, even a Pharaoh. How, is, how, how will this god respond? And it says here that Moses struck the Nile. And that Hebrew word, the root there, nakah, means to smite or to strike dead. It's not a simple hitting or a blow, but it means it's to kill. Through Moses, God shows his power over the false gods. This is the first one brought to death right before Pharaoh's eyes. When he plunges his staff into the water, blood overtakes it. And the thing that once gave life to the Egyptians is now killing all the fish inside of it. It is no longer a source of life, but it is death. God has already demonstrated your gods are nothing. I've killed them. They are dead. Through Moses, he is showing the absolute vacuousness of their idols and the things that they have worshipped in their culture. More on that later. But what they've worshipped for their comfort, their food supply, their health, their safety, all these things 
that they have attached various gods onto were all about to be brought low before Yahweh. And not just brought low, these things are now going to assault the Egyptians, all of which they have worshipped. God is turning them upon them. To a people obsessed with manipulating the gods, there was nothing more terrifying than one they couldn't control. And through all this stuff, Pharaoh, as we go from plague to plague, Pharaoh is just, it's funny, I was going to use the word psychotic, but then, you know, I looked up the definition and looked for some examples. I want to be accurate to all of you when I'm, just, when I'm portraying somebody in the biblical narrative. I don't want to just say something that doesn't accurately describe his character. And so I looked up some examples for psychotic, and I kid you not, the first one I read said, for example, you may be worried that the government is trying to harm you or your loved ones. And uh, <laughs> at that point, I was like, I probably identify a little bit too much with that one. So let's just say that Pharaoh is crazy. Um, several times he agrees to let God's people go, and he immediately reneges on the promise. Once there's a little bit of peace offered up by God and he pulls back the plague, he fails to honor the agreement. This is a man of misery. He's not just inflicting harm and horrors upon the Israelites, but this is hurting everyone. At one point, you even have his own magicians say, this is the finger of God. They come to a point where they're no longer able to replicate through their own magic tricks what, uh, what Moses is doing before Pharaoh. And they say, this is the finger of God. In Exodus 10, 7, you can see they come to Pharaoh. They say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let them go, please. But this man is so hell-bent on his agenda, which was wrong to begin with. I mean, what he was doing was evil. But uh, his people are suffering greatly from the boils, the death of livestock, bugs. Uh, that would have got me there. And hail. They're like, please, just let them go. His own people, the Egyptians, are now suffering for his pride and foolishness as a leader of the nation. And the hail is one of the craziest plagues of all. We don't think about this, but it is kind of crazy because even before they receive the hail that comes down, God is still having patience on the Egyptians. He's still having mercy because God warns them about the hail. He tells them in Exodus 9:19, now therefore send, get your livestock. And all that you have in the field, he says to bring it indoors. I'm about to bring hail down on top of you. The enemies of the Israelites who have been enslaving them and murdering their babies, he gives them a warning. Get outside. And some of them still foolishly step out into it. God gives them warnings and they still go out to something that brings them death and harm. People try to bring all different kinds of indictments against God for some of what he has commanded the Israelites to do at different times throughout their nation's history. They try to say that God is evil for having asked them to do these things, or maybe even that he's evil for doing these plagues and bringing all this upon the Egyptians and bringing these charges. They fail to realize they have no standard with which to judge God's actions uh, in the first place, because without his existence, there is no right and wrong in a godless universe. We'll ignore that for a second, but also God is good and we're not. Jesus points this out when the rich young ruler comes to him and, and asks him what he must do for salvation. He says, don't you know no one's good? Only God is good. And the Egyptians are just as guilty as Pharaoh for the harsh treatment of the Israelites. You know, back when we did the Nuremberg trials, if you're not familiar with that, uh, what the Nuremberg trials are, when the Nazis were brought to pay, when they were brought to account for the sins that they had committed against the people, there was a defense that they tried to bring forward. It was the superior orders defense. There is a reason why at the Nuremberg trials, that did not fly. E even today, just saying that I was following orders is not enough. The individual people have culpability. They are responsible for the decisions they make, regardless of who asked them to do it. So the Egyptians are just as guilty, if not more so than Pharaoh. I mean, they were the ones that were actually carrying out these commands, you know, to beat the Israelites and kill their sons. And yet look at Exodus 9.19. God warned them, telling them to bring things inside. 
God gave Pharaoh and the Egyptians the grace of several warnings and opportunities to repent time and time again. He warns them of coming destruction. And that would have been nice, honestly, for the Israelites. That would have been nice that they would receive the same warning for what was done to them. And you might even be wondering, like I am, if there are some Israelites sitting there with a little bit of impatience, like, God, can you please just fry these people already like Sodom and Gomorrah? And personally, for me, it's a good thing I'm not God. The baby thing put me there. I I have four kids, three of which are biological. So I, I got to witness my wife birth three of our four children. And I still remember the, the first child was pretty traumatic. Uh, it was, she was premature, a month and a half premature. And I remember crying and praying outside the operating room. Like I was terrified. I thought I was going to lose my wife. When they said eclampsia, don't you just hate Google? Because it was an opportunity for me to look that up. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, my wife is going to die. Um, and even more so when they show like mortality rates and everything. And the doctor's like, you need to give birth now. And it was, it was pretty traumatic, the whole experience. I saw my wife cut open on the table, a side of her I never thought I'd see before in my life. And the whole experience. And I, and I still remember that three pound little girl. And I still have a picture of Rick's hand. She was literally the size of Rick's hand. Uh, and, and so tiny and defenseless. And she required everyone around her to keep her alive. And, and to think that somebody could do that. for a woman to go through that trauma of childbirth and to rip that boy away and to throw in the Nile and abandon it like that is pretty sick. And and it's pretty sick. Yeah, I have two boys and to think that somebody would do that to my wife is awful. You know, C.S. Lewis, he draws something out in his second book in his space trilogy of the Paralandra, in one of the characters he portrays, the main character Ransom knew a man called Weston back on earth, but he, he encounters him again on a different planet. And he's become so wicked and evil that it, it is said in the book that he no longer recognizes the humanity in him anymore, that Weston had been completely deformed into a monster. That there's, not, there's nothing left of humanity inside of him anymore. And, and the grim reality that we all must wrestle with when we look at a passage like this is that we're all on the verge of becoming these monsters. And when I see the own selfishness in my own life, I, I don't think any of us are as far away from evils like this. And the evils of something like World War II as we want to believe we are. In Genesis 4, 7, God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door. It's close. It seeks to rule you. It seeks to take over you. But you must rule it. But we're not without hope. We're not without God's grace. The fact that God, God has... He, de- he delivered and he sent Christ for us so that we could accept forgiveness. For those of us that have accepted the forgiveness of Christ for all your sins, that is a- an abundance of his grace. Being able to come to church on-, on Sunday and hear the word of God, this is all an evidence of his grace. The fact that we're still breathing today is an evidence of his grace. The fact that you don't do all the things that sometimes you might be thinking and running through your head and all the evils that we have seen in the world, the fact that he's holds your hands back from that, whether through the personality he's given you or the parents that have raised you or the society you lived in, there are all different kinds of evidences of his grace that have held back evil within inside of us that we're, we're able to see in, a, in the Exodus story just how evil we can get, that that exists inside of all of us. Don't harden your heart in these moments when confronted with our own weakness. We, if you've sinned against God, seek forgiveness, turn away from that sickness and, and go to him and his people for healing. Digging a hole like Pharaoh will only hurt you and everyone else around you, just like it did him. Pharaoh's obstinance brought the whole world back in on top of his head and the head of the Egyptians. I know I'm throwing a lot of Hebrew at you today, 
but I paid for it and went through two semesters, so I'm allowed to abuse you with it every now and then. But the word darkness that God uses in Exodus 10, 21 in one of the plagues, he says that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that may be felt. It's that kind of darkness. When you go back and look at Genesis 1-1, this is the exact same darkness that God is talking about. That tovu vabohu vahosek, that in the beginning, the world was out without form, without void. It was dark over the land. It was absolute chaos. And God comes in and he brings disorder. He says to this plague that I am undoing the world. That same chaos that was there in the beginning, I am bringing back on top of you. And this is what the world will look like without me. This is what he's doing to the Egyptians, bringing their world back into chaos. All the idols that they worship were being undone and found to be attacking them. Where is the God of the Nile? Where is the Egyptian God, Heket, when the frogs descend out of the water? Where's the God set when the dust of the earth rises up in the form of gnats and begins attacking them? Where's the God, Uachin, when the flies are buzzing in their eyes, their gods over health and welfare and the crops, where were they when that was all destroyed? All of what they worshiped and lifted up as a culture over the true and living God were now a source of their destruction. And this could be a whole other message on its own because I see the same thing in our own world, that the very things we hold up in our society, the culture at large, will ultimately be the tools of its own destruction. If you look at the world, a lot of the things that people are praising and lifting up right now are going to be the very things which with, that are disconnected from God that will bring the whole house back in on top of them. These very societal structures that people are building, not connected to the word of God as a foundation, are, are destined to collapse. And Jesus points this out when he says, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the fool built it upon the sand. There's no foundation. There's nothing holding itself up there. What's interesting, and I'll ask you a question to, to demonstrate the interestingness of this. When we, I don't know what everyone's spiritual background is in the room, but even me as somebody who grew up as an unbeliever for 22 years before I was saved, when I think about the Exodus story, let me ask you all, what did God save the Israelites from? Specifically, what did he save the Israelites from? Or let me say this, what do you think he saved the Israelites from specifically? When you think of the Exodus story, people talk about he, he brought his people out of slavery. Slavery, yes. So that's a big thing. Many people often uh, think slavery is a big thing that God had rescued the Israelites from. But is that when God intervened? Did God intervene when the Israelites were on, in slavery? It was actually when their babies were being killed when God stepped in. And I think there's something interesting to be said there. Look back at the garden. Why do you think Satan went after the woman first? Do you think it was because she was probably easier to manipulate? This might be a little theological speculation on my part, I'll be honest. But the angels can't procreate. I believe Satan is the older envious brother who looks at the, the, the powerful gift of procreation that women have, and he specifically assaults that. In the garden, he goes to the woman first because she's the one that's been, been deemed a co-creator with God in that creative process. And as Pharaoh begins attacking children here, in the Exodus story, God intervenes. This is what forces his hand, essentially, when he enters into the Exodus story. And it's interesting, all the things you see, even nowadays in our culture, I believe are an attack on children. And I, that literally could be another sermon. I won't, I won't go there too much. And I, and I think it ultimately will be their undoing. Without God... We have chaos, which is exactly what's demonstrated in these plagues. And none of these things are necessarily bad. The Nile, they brought life, food, health, livestock. None of these are bad things, but they were placing them above God. And Pharaoh repents every now and then when he's, when he's experiencing, when these gods turn back in on top of them. He relents, he repents, he asks God to pull it away. For a moment, there's a little bit of peace, and I think we experience the same thing. 
Even in the book of Judges, we see this cycle. But like Pharaoh, even when we experience that small relief of peace, I think we forget the grace of God and we run right back to our idols and we seek them. We forget the experience, the chaos we experience. We finally realize when we do how good God was when he was a part of our lives. Godlessness leads to chaos in our world at large and even in ourselves individually as it begins to tear down everything. Every time Pharaoh rejects God, his, his world begins collapsing again, going back into chaos. And in the end, God threatens to attack Pharaoh's legacy and completely crush him the very same way which with, with which he sought to crush the Israelites. He went after their firstborn sons, and even in the last plague that God threatens in Exodus 11.5 that we'll get to see more of in the, in the coming chapters, but he says, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And that sounds very cruel out of context, but this is exactly what Pharaoh was doing to the Israelites. The irony of God coming and bringing the same evil with which Pharaoh had brought upon the Israelites is now being brought back in on top of them. And God brought judgment on more than just Pharaoh, especially in this plague. We see that this was on the nation of Egypt. We're going to be looking at the Passover soon and how God had provided the Israelites a way of escape from this, this plague, and actually many other plagues. Oftentimes, Pharaoh says servants to go out and look at the Israelites' encampment, and, and, and he sees, like, none of these plagues are affecting God's people. That's weird. But there is national sin here that God dealt with, and those that may not have been active participants in it, actually grabbing the baby boys and taking them from the women and throwing them in the river, and God knows what to the little girls— they were participants in their omission. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. There are things that we stand by and allow to happen in our presence. And there are things that we do ourselves with our hands and both are evil and wicked before God. Both are a failure to reflect God's image and lie about who he is. There's so much chaos, so much destruction. All of this could have been avoided. All the grace that God has given, especially up to this moment in life, he was Pharaoh. And I don't care how much better we have it now than the Egyptians. When you're at the top of the pyramid, it looks pretty good. Like, yes, Pharaoh didn't have electricity and all the luxuries we have in our day, but he was not at the bottom of the totem pole in his society. God had given him a lot of grace in bringing him up into the position of leadership that he was, that oftentimes God does with wicked rulers throughout human history. They have many, many opportunities to seek the grace of God, to look around and be like, wow, I've been really blessed by God. And he could have held on. He could have held on to some of the status that he had if he would have just let his pride go and let his idols go but they were more important and they ultimately destroyed him and ravaged his people. Godlessness leads to chaos, but it ought not to be so with us. God brings order back. He started with the Israelites in bringing justice back onto the scene. The Israelites, and I hope you all feel this too as we're reading the story, evil people go around unpunished. That's an example of chaos. That's an example of disorder. God in this moment is giving his people exactly what they wanted. They wanted, it wasn't just freedom. They wanted to see their enemies bleed. They wanted retribution for the evil that had been done upon us. And it sounds like an awful thing to say, but it's something we all experience. When there's evil and injustice in this world, there's a little, to, our culture is very big on love, 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 love. We always want to love and love and love. I, but I'm sorry, if you, you cannot love everything. You cannot love everything. That's not true love. You can't love Pharaoh and these poor, innocent Egyptian baby boys at the same time. It's not possible. To sit there and, and allow these injustices to happen upon these baby boys is in itself an act of hatred against them. To not feel the indignation and the lack of justice against what Pharaoh is doing is a lack of love. This is a lack of love not to step in when someone is being harmed or there's evil in the world to not do something. This is an example of hatred. They, they are conflicting. And those who are in Christ will see the same retribution come to fruition in our own world. That, that frustration that you feel when you see injustice in this world 
was dealt with first in you and is being dealt with in Christ. That same evil inside of you was dealt with finally and fully on the cross. We, we still sin, we still stumble as we seek to follow Christ in our lives, but it was completely dealt with in Jesus so that we could be reconciled and brought back into relationship with the Father. So even the wickedness and the turmoil and the chaos within inside of us was handled on the cross. All of that evil was thrown up on the cross so that God would see you as perfect for the rest of your days. That order that God desires for humanity and desires for the world, he is, he is working that in you now. But one day, all the injustice of the world will be dealt with. In Christ, uh, he will utterly decimate all these things. It will be destroyed and brought low by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will push out the chaos in our world and usher in eternal peace as he is even doing for us now in our own lives. And that's really all I have to say. <laughs> we, we see through this story, I, I hope we don't forget this and we even see this in our own world. When, when there's a, a lack of God, even in our world at large, and the things that are being attacked specifically, I think as you look around in the world and think carefully on these things, the chaos and disorder that is out there and in us will ultimately be dealt with by Christ, not just in us, but in the world. Amen? Let's pray. God, there is still wickedness, even in my own heart. There's selfishness, there's pride, there's anger. Uh, there's many things that need to be dealt with, even in our own lives, and I pray that you'd you'd continue to do the work that you started. You've promised to bring it to completion and we look forward to that hope. But you've also promised to bring all the evil and injustice we see not just inside of ourselves, but out there in the world. Uh, You've promised to bring retribution and healing, both to bear on the world. We long for the day with which you do these things. Uh, we, We pray that you would save those that are caught in all this foolishness. We pray that you would reach out to them through through your people and bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.